Section 11 of Iola Leroy, or Shadows Uplifted. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Iola Leroy, or Shadows Uplifted, by Francis E. W. Harper. Chapter Eleven, The Plague and the Law. Years passed, bringing no special change to the life of Leroy and his wife. Shut out from the busy world, its social cares and anxieties, Marie's life flowed peacefully on. Although removed by the protecting care of Leroy from the condition of servitude, she still retained a deep sympathy for the enslaved and was ever ready to devise plans to ameliorate their condition. Leroy, although in the midst of slavery, did not believe in the rightfulness of the institution. He was in favor of gradual emancipation, which would prepare both master and slave for a moral adaptation to the new conditions of freedom. While he was willing to have the old rivets taken out of slavery, Politicians and planters were devising plans to put in new screws. He was desirous of having it ended in the States. They were clamorous to have it established in the territories. But so strong was the force of habit, combined with the feebleness of his moral resistance and the nature of his environment, that instead of being an athlete, armed for a glorious strife, he had learned to drift where he should have steered, to float with the current, instead of nobly breasting the tide. He conducted his plantation with as much lenity as it was possible to infuse into a system darkened with the shadow of a million crimes. Leroy had always been especially careful not to allow his children to spend their vacations at home. He and Marie generally spent that time with them at some summer resort. "'I would like,' said Marie one day, to have our children spend their vacations at home. Those summer resorts are pleasant, yet, after all, there is no place like home. But, and her voice became tremulous, our children would now notice their social isolation and inquire the cause. A faint sigh arose to the lips of Leroy as she added, Man is a social being. I've known it to my sorrow. There was a tone of sadness in Leroy's voice as he replied, Yes, Marie, let them stay north. We seem to be entering on a period fraught with great danger. I cannot help thinking and fearing that we are on the eve of a civil war. A civil war? exclaimed Marie, with an air of astonishment. A civil war? About what? Why, Marie... The thing looks to me so wild and foolish I hardly know how to explain. But some of our leading men have come to the conclusion that North and South had better separate, and instead of having one, to have two independent governments. The spirit of secession is rampant in the land. I do not know what the result will be, and I fear it will bode no good to the country. Between the fire-eating Southerners and the meddling abolitionists, we are about to be plunged into a great deal of trouble. I fear there are breakers ahead. The South is dissatisfied with the state of public opinion in the North. 
we are realizing that we are two peoples in the midst of one nation william h seward has proclaimed that the conflict between freedom and slavery is irrepressible and that the country cannot remain half free and half slave how will you go asked marie my heart is with the union i don't believe in secession there has been no cause sufficient to justify a rupture the north has met us time and again in the spirit of concession and compromise when we wanted the continuance of the african slave trade the north conceded that we should have twenty years of slave trading for the benefit of our plantations when we wanted more territory she conceded to our desires and gave us land enough to carve out four states and there yet remains enough for four more when we wanted power to recapture our slaves when they fled north for refuge daniel webster told northerners to conquer their prejudices and they gave us the whole northern states as a hunting ground for our slaves the presidential chair has been filled the greater number of years by southerners and the majority of offices has been shared by our men we wanted representation in congress on a basis that would include our slaves and the north whose suffrage represents only men gave us a three-fifths representation for our slaves whom we count as property i think the step will be suicidal there are extremists in both sections but i hope between them both wise counsels and measures will prevail just then alfred lorraine was ushered into the room occasionally he visited leroy but he always came alone his wife was the only daughter of an enterprising slave trader who had left her a large amount of property her social training was deficient her education limited but she was too proud of being a pure white woman to enter the home of leroy with marie as its presiding genius lorraine tolerated marie's presence as a necessary evil while to her he always seemed like a presentiment of trouble with his coming a shadow fell upon her home hushing its music and darkening its sunshine a sense of dread oppressed her there came into her soul an intuitive feeling that somehow his coming was fraught with danger when not peering around she would often catch his eyes bent on her with a baleful expression leroy and his cousin immediately fell into a discussion on the condition of the country lorraine was a rank secessionist ready to adopt the most extreme measures of the leaders of the movement even to the reopening of the slave trade leroy thought a dissolution of the union would involve a fearful expenditure of blood and treasure for which before the eyes of the world there could be no justification the debate lasted late into the night leaving both lorraine and leroy just as set in their opinions as they were before they began marie listened attentively a while then excused herself and withdrew after lorraine had gone marie said there is something about your cousin that fills me with nameless dread i always feel when he enters the room as if someone were walking over my grave i do wish you would stay at home i wish so too since he disturbs you but marie you are growing nervous how cold your hands are don't you feel well oh yes i am only a little faint i wish he would never come but as he does i must make the best of it yes marie 
treat him well for my sake. He is the only relative I have, who ever darkens our doors. I have no faith in his friendship for either myself or my children. I feel that while he makes himself agreeable to you, he hates me from the bottom of his heart, and would do anything to get me out of the way. Oh, I am so glad I am your lawful wife, and that you married me before you brought me back to this state. I believe that if you were gone he wouldn't have the least scruple against trying to prove our marriage invalid and remanding us to slavery. Leroy looked anxiously and soberly at his wife, and said, Marie, I do not think so. Your life is too lonely here. Write your orders to New Orleans, get what you need for the journey, and let us spend the summer somewhere in the north. Just then Marie's attention was drawn to some household matters, and it was a short time before she returned. Tom, continued Leroy, has just brought the mail, and here is a letter from Iola. Marie noticed that he looked quite sober as he read, and that an expression of vexation was lingering on his lips. "'What is the matter?' asked Marie. "'Nothing much, only a tempest in a teapot. The presence of a colored girl in Mr. Galen's school has caused a breeze of excitement. You know, Mr. Galen is quite an abolitionist, and, being true to his principles, he could not consistently refuse when a colored woman applied for her daughter's admission.' Of course, when he took her, he was compelled to treat her as any other pupil. In so doing, he has given mortal offense to the mother of two southern boys. She has threatened to take them away if the colored girl remains. "'What will he do about it?' asked Marie thoughtfully. "'Oh, it is a bitter pill, but I think he will have to swallow it. He is between two fires. He cannot dismiss her from the school and be true to his abolition principles.' Yet, if he retains her, he will lose his southern customers, and I know he cannot afford to do that. What does Iola say? He has found another boarding place for her, but she is to remain in the school. He had to throw that sop to the whale. Does she take sides against the girl? No, I don't think she does. She says she feels sorry for her, and that she would hate to be colored. It is so hard to be looked down on for what one can't help. Poor child! I wish we could leave the country. I never would consent to her marrying anyone without first revealing to him her connection with the Negro race. This is a subject on which I am not willing to run any risks. My dear Marie, when you shall have read Iola's letter, you will see it is more than a figment of my imagination that has made me so loath to have our children know the paralyzing power of caste. Leroy, always liberal with his wife and children, spared neither pains nor expense to have them prepared for their summer outing. Iola was to graduate in a few days. Harry was attending a school in the state of Maine, and his father had written to him, apprising him of his intention to come north that season. In a few days, Leroy and his wife started north, but before they reached Vicksburg, they were met by the intelligence that the yellow fever was spreading in the Delta, and that pestilence was breathing its bane upon the morning air and distilling its poison upon the midnight dews. "'Let us return home,' said Marie. "'It is useless,' answered Leroy. It is nearly two days since we left home. The fever is spreading south of us with fearful rapidity. 
to return home is to walk into the jaws of death. It was my intention to have stopped at Vicksburg, but now I will go on as soon as I can make the connections. Early next morning, Leroy and his wife started again on their journey. The cars were filled with terror-stricken people who were fleeing from death when death was everywhere. They fled from the city only to meet the dreaded apparition in the country. As they journeyed on, Leroy grew restless and feverish. He tried to brace himself against the infection which was creeping slowly but insidiously into his life, dulling his brain, fevering his blood, and prostrating his strength. But vain were all his efforts. He had no armor strong enough to repel the invasion of death. They stopped at a small town on the way, and obtained the best medical skill and most careful nursing, but neither skill nor art availed. On the third day death claimed Leroy as a victim, and Marie wept in hopeless agony over the grave of her devoted husband, whose sad lot it was to die from home and be buried among strangers. But before he died he placed his will in Marie's hands, saying, I have left you well provided for. Kiss the children for me and bid them good-bye. He tried to say a parting word to Gracie, but his voice failed, and he fainted into the stillness of death. A mortal paleness overspread his countenance, on which had already gathered the shadows that never deceive. In speechless agony, Marie held his hand until it released its pressure in death. And then she stood alone beside her dead, with all the bright sunshine of her life fading into the shadows of the grave. Heartbroken and full of fearful forebodings, Marie left her cherished dead in the quiet village of H, and returned to her death-darkened home. It was a lovely day in June. Birds were singing their sweetest songs, flowers were breathing their fragrance on the air, when Mam Liza, sitting at her cabin door, talking with some of the house-servants, saw a carriage approaching, and wondered who was coming. "'I wonder,' she said excitedly, "'who's coming to the house when the folks is done gone?' But her surprise was soon changed to painful amazement when she saw Marie, robed in black, alighting from the carriage and holding Gracie by the hand. She caught sight of the drooping head and grief-stricken face and rushed to her, exclaiming, "'Was Mas Eugene?' "'Dead,' said Marie, falling into Mammy Liza's arms, sobbing out, "'Dead. Died of yellow fever.' A wild burst of sorrow came from the lips of the servants, who had drawn near. "'Where is he?' said Mam Liza, speaking like one suddenly bewildered. He is buried in H. I could not bring him home, said Marie. My poor baby, said Mam Liza, with broken sobs. I's dreadful sorry. My heart's most broken in two. Then, controlling herself, she dismissed the servants who stood around weeping and led Marie to her room. Come, honey, lie down and let me get you a cup of tea. Oh, no, I don't want anything, said Marie, wringing her hands in bitter agony. Oh, honey, said Mam Liza, you mustn't give up. You knows where to put your trust. You can't lean on the arm of flesh in this trying time. Kneeling by the side of her mistress, she breathed out a prayer full of tenderness, hope, and trust. 
Marie grew calmer. It seemed as if that earnest, trustful prayer had breathed into her soul a feeling of resignation. Gracie stood wonderingly by, vainly trying to comprehend the great sorrow which was overwhelming the life of her mother. After the first great burst of sorrow was over, Marie sat down to her desk and wrote a letter to Iola, informing her of her father's death. By the time she had finished it, she grew dizzy and faint, and fell into a swoon. Mammy Liza tenderly laid her on the bed, and helped restore her to consciousness. Lorraine, having heard of his cousin's death, came immediately to see Marie. She was too ill to have an interview with him, but he picked up the letter she had written, and obtained Iola's address. Lorraine made a careful investigation of the case, to ascertain whether Marie's marriage was valid. To his delight he found there was a flaw in the marriage, and an informality in the manumission. He then determined to invalidate Marie's claim, and divide the inheritance among Leroy's white relations. In a short time, strangers, distant relatives of her husband, became frequent visitors at the plantation, and made themselves offensively familiar. At length, the dreadful storm burst. Alfred Lorraine entered suit for his cousin's estate, and for the remanding of his wife and children to slavery. In a short time he came armed with legal authority, and said to Marie, "'I have come to take possession of these premises.' "'By what authority?' she gasped, turning deathly pale. He hesitated a moment, as if his words were arrested by a sense of shame. "'By what authority?' she again demanded. "'By the authority of the law,' answered Lorraine, "'which has decided that Leroy's legal heirs are his white-blood relations.' and that your marriage is null and void. But, exclaimed Marie, I have our marriage certificate. I was Leroy's lawful wife. Your marriage certificate is not worth the paper it is written on. Oh, you must be jesting, cruelly jesting. It can't be so. Yes, it is so. Judge Starkins has decided that your manumission is unlawful. Your marriage a bad precedent, and inimical to the welfare of society, and that you and your children are remanded to slavery. Marie stood as one petrified. She seemed a statue of fear and despair. She tried to speak, reached out her hand as if she were groping in the dark, turned pale as death, as if all the blood in her veins had receded to her heart, and, with one heart-rending cry of bitter agony, she fell senseless to the floor. Her servants, to whom she had been so kind in her days of prosperity, bent pityingly over her, chafed her cold hands, and did what they could to restore her to consciousness. For a while she was stricken with brain fever, and her life seemed trembling on its frailest cord. Gracie was like one perfectly dazed. When not watching by her mother's bedside, she wandered aimlessly about the house, growing thinner day by day. A slow fever was consuming her life. Faithfully and carefully, Mammy Liza watched over her, and did all she could to bring smiles to her lips, and light to her fading eyes, but all in vain. Her only interest in life was to sit where she could watch her mother as she tossed to and fro in delirium, and to wonder what had brought the change in her once happy home. Finally, 
she too was stricken with brain fever which intervened as a mercy between her and the great sorrow that was overshadowing her young life tears would fill the servants eyes as they saw the dear child drifting from them like a lovely vision too bright for earth's dull cares and weary wasting pain end of section 11 recording by james k white chula vista